Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6. When uh, Jamie and I sat down to kind of divide out this book, this is one of the first ones we've got to do together, um, I told him, I said, you, you divide out the way you think we should preach it, and I'll divide out the way I think we should preach it, and then we'll come together and we'll see how we do. And, and surprisingly, there was not a lot of conflict. Um, but this was one of the places where there was a little bit of disagreement um, in the way in which we had broken out the text. Um, and and I was, we were kind of torn about preaching 3 through 6 and then 7 through 14 or preaching 3 through 14, or at least I was a little torn. Um, but ultimately, due to time reasons, we opted to split the passage up because of just how much there is. Paul is saying so much. Um, but the reason that we thought about keeping it together is because 3 through 14 is a sentence like I would write. It's one long, run-on sentence. Amber used to get on to me all the time, and I'm like, Paul's doing it. Look, take, take a second, if you have your Bible, look, look at three. I mean, that's, that's a lot, right? For one sentence, one, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to divide up paragraphs because that's normally, you know, an overall thought, but it's, it's really hard to divide up one sentence. But that's, that's what we're doing this morning. And, and I'm basically going to be serving in this sermon as kind of the introduction to the whole sentence, if that makes sense. Because we have to be careful divorcing part of what Paul is saying here from the whole of what Paul is saying here. And Paul is trying to communicate with the best human words he can the amazing gifts of God. The amazing good gifts that God gives to believers. So I want you to keep that in mind as we look at these three verses that, that in many ways, again, this, this will serve as kind of an introduction to next week. And Paul is just, he's just packing so much into one sentence. So let's read our passage that we're going to cover this morning together as a church. We'll put this up on the screen, beginning in verse 3. Read it with me as a church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. So my goal this morning is going to be kind of threefold as we work through this passage. First, I want to show you the source of God's amazing gifts to us. So first, I want to show you the source of God's gift, his amazing gifts to us. Second, I want to talk about the location of God's gift, 
God's good gifts to us. In other words, where, where do we find these gifts? Where's the location of these gifts? So the source, then the location, and then finally, third, I want to show you that before we were lost in Adam, he possessed us in Christ. That before we were lost in Adam, he possessed us in Christ. Let's start with that first one. First, I want to show you the source of God's amazing gift to us. And we see the source of God's gift in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In this verse, we see Paul's Trinitarian view of God. Paul starts by saying, Blessed, blessed be the, the God and Father. Right? So, so this, is, this is the original kind of source, but, but it doesn't stop there. He, he blesses us with what? His Son. So we see the Father and the Son. So that's the second thing that we see, is that, that our blessings come through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that God the Father has chosen to bless us through Him. It's Jesus' work on the cross atoning for the sin of humanity that enables us to be blessed by God. But third, we see the Holy Spirit in the type of blessing that we receive, right? Paul says we are blessed with what? Every spiritual blessing. The way we are blessed is spiritual. What, what does it look like in the life of the believer? It means that we are gifted the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul says it a little later on in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in this passage, we see each person of the Godhead bestowing good gifts upon us as believers. Paul's saying that through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are given every spiritual blessing. With that in mind, I want to now shift to the location of those spiritual blessings. I don't think many of you are surprised by Paul's Trinitarian view of God and, and understanding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what may be different or new to some of you this morning is the location of the spiritual blessings that we are to receive. You see, for so many in the church, there's been a fundamental misunderstanding about what it means to be blessed by God. Instead of spiritual blessings in heavenly places, we've tried to make them material blessings in earthly places. Now, I understand why. Because if you go back to a book like Deuteronomy in chapter 28, at the blessing that God gives to the people of Israel for obedience did indeed mean material blessing. There was a, a promise of the land, a promise of cattle, the promise of provision. But when we compare that to the blessings in the New Testament under the new covenant, under Jesus, we find that blessings go inward, internally, and are much deeper and much better than anything we can receive in this fallen world where, where the moth eats away at it and rust fades it, right? The New Testament blessing is the promise of the gift of Christ himself. Now, there is a, a, a parallel 
to this in the Old Testament. We see it in the Levitical priesthood. And we're told that the, the Levitical priesthood, they, they, when they were divvying out the land, the Levitical priesthood got no land. They got no physical, earthly inheritance. Why? Because the Bible says the Lord himself was their portion. This is, this is a foreshadowing. This is a picture of what it's like to be in Christ Jesus. That it's not about the earthly. It's about getting something far greater, far better than anything we could ever get in a material blessing. Just like the priests, we get God himself. Jesus Christ coming to dwell within us through the Holy Spirit. We're told in the New Testament that under Christ we are what? We are a royal what? Priesthood in, in 1 Peter 2.9. So that means the, the good gift we receive from God is the gift of His Son by the work of His Holy Spirit. And I want to be as clear as God's Word to, to make sure you're not under the false impression that God is here to just give you everything you want. So many people view God that way, that He's, he's like a vending machine, that you just walk up and punch the right buttons and boom, out pops what you want. That's not what the Bible teaches, folks. But what the Bible does teach is what, the, what you get from God is far better than anything you could ever get in this world. Because the reality is, in our fallen state, none of us know what we truly want or need. We definitely don't know what we want until the Spirit opens our eyes to be able to accept and enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ. This brings me to the second point from this passage. Second, notice the location of the good gifts to us. Paul says, Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, where? In heavenly places. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear where our spiritual blessings reside by saying that they are in heavenly places places. By saying this, Paul makes it clear that the blessings he is talking about is not, not in the material realm, but in the heavenly realm. Now, the Greek used here for heavenly places is literally just means the heavenlies. And a fun fact, this is the only place in the New Testament that this word is used, is, is in the book of Ephesians. So what does Paul mean by the heavenlies or the heavenly realm? I would argue that, that we should not think so much about this as a geographical place. In other words, a, a physical location. As much as we should think about it as a different dimension or a different realm of existence. And let me explain why I say that based on the evidence we see in the book of Ephesians. So like I say, this, this term only appears in the book of Ephesians, but it shows up five times. First, here in our passage, we see that the Father blesses us with the gift of Christ living in us. That is the hope of glory. In other words, the gift of the Holy Spirit is somehow residing inside of us. And based on this passage, he is residing in a heavenly realm inside of us, right? So the Holy Spirit's the gift, 
But where do we get that gift? In the heavenly realm. So, so in some way, the, the Holy Spirit is existing inside of us in the material world, but at the same time, in the, in the heavenly realm. This is the first reason I would say that this realm is less about geography and more about dimension. In other words, where I'm standing right now can be both the material realm and the heavenly realm. Because somehow my physical body is occupying space in the material realm, and at the same time, as a believer, the Holy Spirit is also occupying space in the heavenly realm inside of me. Somehow we're occupying the same geographic space when the Holy Spirit is residing in our hearts. Now jump down to verse 20. I think we have these. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Verse 20 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Here Paul says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here you might say, Dale, well, this, this means that the heavenly realm is, is up there and the material realm is down here. But I would challenge that by saying that through the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus became a material, physical human. And because of this, Jesus is forever a human, meaning somewhere right now is a physical, material Jesus in a heavenly dimension. He's basically the opposite of our situation. Now, flip over to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. If your mind's not spinning enough, it gets better. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, and Paul just wants us to see the good gifts the Father is giving us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting here is in verse 6, Paul is speaking in the present tense. He's not speaking in the future tense. He's speaking in the present tense. Now, that's, that means that we have been raised with Christ and are seated in the heavenly realm with Jesus right now. That, that somehow, if, if you are a believer... There is a part of you sitting with Jesus right now. Mind-blowing, right? Don't ask me to explain it. This is just what Paul's saying. I believe it. I don't fully understand it, but I believe it. That, that somehow we are fully, fully enjoying Jesus at this very moment. Now, flip over to Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. It says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in where? The heavenly places. Paul's saying something really strange here. 
He's saying that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, if you've got a brain, you should be asking, who are these rulers and authorities, right? Okay, flip over to chapter 6, verse 12. Paul tells us who they are. I, I don't have to explain it. Paul explains himself. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenly places. The final time that this phrase is used here in Ephesians, represents our struggle. And, and Paul is reminding us that our fight is not with flesh and blood. In other words, our fight is not in the material realm, but against rulers and against authorities and against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul's trying to get us to see that there is an unseen realm that he calls heavenly places. And this, this, as verse says, verse 3 says, this is where we receive our spiritual gifts. In the heavenly places. But the heavenly places are also where the child of God and the church engage in spiritual battle with evil. Therefore, we're called to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. When we walk in the Spirit with our eyes fixed on Christ, we are told in Ephesians chapter 3 that we are raised with Him and seated with Him in heavenly places. That in the Spirit, we have already won the spiritual victory. It's already ours. So why aren't more of us experiencing that reality? Well, the sad truth is that too many people are living too much in the world and not in the spiritual realities of what God has done for us in Christ. Chapter 3 reminds us that the church is the emblem of Christ's victory to the powers in the spiritual realm. Chapter 6 reminds us that the heavenly realm is the realm in which spiritual forces are at play. So Paul is saying the only way to receive our heavenly gifts is to enter into the spiritual battle that is taking place in the heavenly realm. What again does Paul say the heavenly gift is in our passage? The gift is Jesus Christ himself. All spiritual gifts increase as we surrender to him. As we grow in Christ and trust his victory what does this gift prepare us for? The spiritual gifts prepare us for battle. They prepare us for spiritual warfare. Doesn't that spiritual gift sound awesome to you? Again, the Old Testament is foreshadowing this future reality. I think you can see a beautiful picture of this when you think about the, the, the children of Israel being taken out of Egypt, taken out of slavery. What was the goal of the Exodus? To get to the promised land, right? That was, that was the goal. But what happened when the spies scouted out the land? Was it everything that it was promised to be and more? Yes. But they got scared. 
There were enemies there. They were going to have to fight. But in the wilderness, there were very few battles, right? But the wilderness is the place where people, where the nation of Israel doubted God. They doubted their salvation. Some of them even got so desperate that they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back into slavery. Because of this, they wandered in the wilderness. Now, what happened when they finally got to the promised land? This is where most of the battles took place, right? Sadly, most of the church today does a lot of wilderness living and very little living in the promised land. Because we're not engaged in the battle. Because we're too busy engaging in the material world, fighting against each other, fighting against flesh and blood instead of in the heavenly realm fighting the real enemies, Paul says. Paul's trying to get us to see this morning that if we have never tasted spiritual warfare, then you need to ask yourself if you've ever tasted Jesus. Because to taste Jesus in the heavenly realm means to suit up, as we're going to see later in this chapter, and go to war. Because to receive the gift of Jesus in the heavenly realm, that's where the battle is happening. This is why it's important for each of us to count the costs of following Jesus. Receiving the gift of Jesus also means becoming a vessel that Christ uses to battle the very gates of hell. This is why Jesus says that you will be hated as I was hated. And he encourages us to count the costs. The gift of Jesus, Paul says, lets us enter into the suffering of Jesus but also into the victory of Jesus. Now you may be asking yourself, well, Dale, how, how can I be so sure of this victory? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's my last point. Finally, I want to show you that before we were lost in Adam, he possessed us in Christ. I get this statement from how one theologian paraphrases this passage. And I think it describes it so beautifully and so elegantly, but also so simply. Before we were lost in Adam, he possessed us in Christ. This statement is a little easier to wrap our head around than another one I read by A.W. Tozer. He writes in The Pursuit of God this, God is always previous. God is always previous. While this statement is very simple, it is very profound. And this is the point Paul is trying to make in this introduction. The concepts of election and predestination means that God's intervention was not plan B. Jesus Christ was always plan A from the foundation of the world. God is always previous. Before we were lost in Adam, he possessed us in Christ. God, through Jesus, entered into time and flesh to choose us. Election is bound to Christ Jesus, the God-man. Election is bound to his incarnation, the word becoming flesh, 100% God and 100% man. 
You see, in Jesus we find both the choosing God and the chosen man. Jesus is the firstborn of a new humanity, but also the firstborn over all of creation. Jesus is the chosen man as well as the choosing God. He is both the electing God and the elect one of God. Jesus is our representative man. He stands in our place. God chose Christ before the foundation of the world. Because of all of this, all those who are in him are chosen. This is how I know for sure that we will see the victory of Jesus. Before we were lost in Adam, he possessed us in Christ. This is why election is, is inextricably bound to Jesus. Jesus showed us that election meant the responsibility of carrying the judgment of the world upon his shoulders. Jesus bore this great responsibility through his election on the cross. Jesus, the elect one, bore the judgment of the world. What a, what a beautiful picture of what election looks like. Isn't that an amazing gift? That God has chosen you just like he chose Jesus? The question for you this morning is, have you responded to God's decision about you? If not, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the reality of the decision God has made about you and what Christ has done for you. So that, as it says in verse 13, and I'm going to paraphrase this now, when you hear the word of truth this morning, the gospel of your salvation, you will believe in him and be sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of your inheritance. And that will lead you to praise his glorious election of your soul. He says that all who believe shall be saved. He unveils this truth and you respond to that decision that's already been made. So it's all God's work from the beginning to the end. The picture Paul gives us is that God has freely given, has freely given himself to us in Jesus. Jesus taking on flesh was a self-humbling Likewise, if you want to experience the fullness of God's gift through Jesus, you must humble yourself and submit to his lordship. If we are to enter into the spiritual battle that is raging all around us, listen, we need the lordship of Jesus to protect us in the heavenly realms. We're going to see that the book of Ephesians is, is supremely about the role of the church and its identification in Christ. You'll see that more next week as we finish verses 7 through 14. If you're reading ahead of time this week, meditating before the sermon, I encourage you to notice the eight times that Paul tells you that you are in Christ. 
we're going to continue to see the importance of Christ or the church's identification with and in Christ. We will be blessed as a church as we walk by the Spirit and submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And sadly, sadly, some of you here want the inheritance without the submission part. And God, he, he, he wants to do so much more through church on the way. But the more we do, the more attacks will come. The more spiritual attacks will rage. The question is, are you ready? Because if you're one of those people who want the inheritance without the submission, you're going to be the weak link. You're going to be the point of division. Have you submitted yourself to Jesus? Are you submitted to one another in Christian unity? If you are, we will function as one body whose, whose Lord is Jesus. And when we do that, the heavenly places go crazy. Because the world sees something completely unique. This inheritance, though, requires us to sanctify ourselves. See, we will be his inheritance and he will be ours. But it requires us to sanctify ourselves. But this inheritance also brings an assurance of our salvation. People sometimes ask me, how, how do I know if I'm really saved? If anybody ever asks you that question, here's an answer you can give them. Assurance comes through obedience. Assurance comes through obedience. You will never meet an assured Christian who walks in complete and total disobedience. They will always be unsure about their salvation. We're called not to walk in perfection, but in obedience to the Spirit. The evidence of our election is that we have been set apart to be holy and blameless, Paul says. You belong to Jesus, and he now belongs to you. There's a part of you somehow with him in the heavenly realm. And there's a part of him with us through the Holy Spirit in the earthly realm. We as a church are called to receive the full gift of his presence. Jesus desires an intimate presence in our midst. We need to be in Jesus if we're going to engage in spiritual warfare. This is the only way we will be, we will be successful in fighting for the souls of our friends, our families, and our neighbors. Are you ready? This morning, have you submitted yourself to Jesus? Are you submitted to one another in true Christian unity? I pray that you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good gifts that you give us. Father, given us the, the gift of your Son, 
His righteousness, His overcoming sin and death. Father, we, we could not accomplish that on our own. And Father, we thank you this morning that that was not plan B. That, that what happened with Adam didn't surprise you or, 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 or take you off guard because you had elected Jesus Christ from the foundation of the world. You had predestined him to be our Savior. And God, for that, we praise you this morning.